If you don't know how much you're earning and how much you're spending, how can you build a plan about what you can put away, what you can invest? You know, how do you decide whether you can go out for that extra meal out on a Thursday or not? Mm. How do you decide if you can buy a new car? You know, and so as simple as it sounds, it's really rudimentary stuff, but you've got to start with a budget and you've got to understand how much is coming in and how much is going out. That was Stafford Hamilton. This is the Newbie Dentist Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Omid Zami. Welcome to episode four of four of the financial mini-series with the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I hope you have enjoyed the previous three episodes where we've covered a lot of amazing high-yield topics. The download numbers for these financial series have been quite impressive, and I look forward to bringing the audience and the listeners more and more information on these financial aspects of being a young dentist, looking into practice ownership, and beyond. In this episode, I sat down with the CEO of Credible, Stafford Hamilton. Stafford has over 20 years of experience working in supporting the medical community through financial services. And in this episode, we sort of summarize all the topics that we have touched on in the previous episodes, a blueprint for the young dentist, when to buy a car, when to buy a house, when to buy a practice, and how to sequence these things to maximize your your financial flexibility and to build a secure financial future for yourself. We also talk a little bit about personal finance and the importance of financial education in providing you the flexibility to make decisions in your career that aren't guided necessarily by money. Stafford shares his wealth of information with us in this episode, and I hope you guys get as much out of it as I did. This episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast has been proudly supported by specialist medical lender Credible. If you need finance, be it for your personal or professional needs, the team at Credible know the drill. From home loans and car loans to equipment and fit-out loans, or even commercial property and practice purchases, the finance specialist at Credible will provide a tailored solution for you. Learn more at www.credible.com.au, that's C-R-E-D-A-B-L.com.au, where you can learn more and you can live chat with a member of the team 24-7. Without further delay, enjoy this amazing interview with Stafford Hamilton. So I'm joined today by the CEO of Credible, Mr. Stafford Hamilton. This is the final part of the financial mini-series, and we've covered a lot. So I was hoping today uh, with yourself, Stafford, we'd sort of tie things together and do a bit of a blueprint of financial freedom or wealth creation, whatever it may be for the new grad from you know zero to five years out. Um, you, you guys, you know, through the work that I do with Credible, I'm sure I've worked with a lot of dentists and, you know, various stages of their career. So I'm really sort of excited to get your experience and, and expertise on the subject. Normally what we do, if you don't mind, is just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and then we'll jump into it. Cool. Thanks. I mean, it's a um, pleasure to be here. Um, my background is basically I was born in the UK um, in the 70s, so I'm getting on a bit these days. Um, I moved to South Africa in the early 90s and did about eight or nine years there and moved with my family um, to Australia in 2002. So my accent's a little bit weird because it's gone from the UK and South Africa and now Australia. And I've been, uh, I've been in, I guess, the front end of businesses through all of that. And, you know, people in the front end tend to be a bit of a chameleon. So maybe my accents changed because of that. But it used to be pretty, you know, pretty Oxford, England kind of accent before. Yeah. Um, when I arrived in Australia, um, I joined a business inside um, the National Bank, National Australia Bank. 
Um, I worked there for a couple of years and then founded a business called Experian in 2004. Um, that, that business was also focused on supporting the financial ambitions of healthcare professionals and left there in 2015 and then started Credible in 2017 um, as kind of, you know, what I think of as maybe the third generation of financing in this sort of space. Um, and so obviously really proud of what we've managed to build at Credible so far in the past sort of four years um, and looking forward to building more in the future. Excellent. Uh, over the the previous three episodes, we've sort of covered a lot of topics from you know good debt versus bad debt, or whether you should buy a home first or a practice first, uh, and then we had you know chats with uh, about the accounting side of things as well and setting up a practice and the the accounting infrastructure that goes with it. Within myself, I mean, I'm about four years now, so I'm sort of in that stage of you know I guess my career where I'm thinking about you know buying a practice and buying a house and focus on the wealth creation side of things. So uh, mostly selfishly, that's why I do the podcast, I guess, is I get to ask experts things that I'm curious about. But um, I try and ask these questions thinking that there'll be other people in a similar situation. So uh, let's sort of walk through from your experience, I guess, if you have specific examples of dentists that you work with, sort of like a zero to five year, I guess, like a playbook or a blueprint of, of suggestions and strategies you have. And then if there's anything in between, I'll kind of jump in and we'll try and uh, dive in a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I think um, I think the first thing is there's no right answer to that question. I think, you know, I've always focused quite a lot on the human element around this. So people have different aspirations. I think it's really important to build around what it is that you see as your future. So if you take your typical dentist, you know, they're generally graduating reasonably early, you know, relative to other medical professions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of 23, 24, um, that sort of age group. And so what generally they tend to focus on is, is I want to get a house, you know, that tends to be the first thing, but one needs to think about whether looking at a business will drive income very differentially to create the ability to buy a different house. So, you know, if I take an example, I very often get calls from young dentists saying I want to buy a car and I'm like, okay, what kind of car do you want to buy? Yeah, I want to buy a really cheap one. I don't go very far, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, my experience has been if you go and buy yourself a $10,000 Corolla that's five years old, you're going to be calling me in 12 months and telling me that you want to sell that Corolla and buy something else. Maybe we should talk about something in the middle range. Yeah. I'm not saying buy a Lamborghini, but maybe you want to buy, you know, a new Golf or something like that. So yeah. I think the thing that's important is just working through with people at adjustment, you know, like when you come off being a student, your knee-jerk reaction is, you know, it is quite conservative, you know, and, and let's use the word tight with money. You know, you've lived on not a lot for quite a long period of time. And so, of course, I understand why you're saying, okay, I want to buy a car. It's just going to get me around. I'm going to do the very minimum. But you've got to think about transaction costs and anything you do, anything you buy or sell, you've got to think about transaction costs and, you know, what the, what the asset will depreciate between the time you buy it and the time you sell it. Yeah. So the problem that I've got with that strategy is most people, once they get into a routine and dentists generally, you know, most will earn above $100,000 a year very soon after graduation um, if they, you know, join a practice, or, you know, getting mentored, et cetera. And so once you're earning sort of eight, $9,000 a month and that's going into your bank every month, then your mindset will change quite 
distinctly. Yeah. And I think it's a mistake to make too many decisions until that actual banking of the check has happened. So I always say to people, let's just take a couple of breaths. You know, you graduated in November, you went on holidays and, you know, took a good break, which you should have done. You're starting a new job in January or February. You know, maybe we shouldn't make any major purchase decisions until March or April and see how you feel about that cash coming into the bank. And then you might decide not to buy the Corolla, you might buy the Golf. Yeah. You know, and golf will probably see you very, very happy for three to four years, which will be, you know, a very different equation to buying a golf and then trading out of it in a year's time. So, you know, I think the first part of the journey is just understanding how your life is going to change and how you should use that change of cash flow. So, you know, first things first is I've got to get to work. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's give you a little bit of an overdraft, you know, just to get you the tools that you need to get to work. I know that, you know, in that early phase of the career, a lot of people are a little bit debt averse, which I mean, I understand. I don't want to push debt out to people that don't want it. Yeah. But I think at the beginning, what you really want is, you know, you've got to buy, you know, some drills and, some, you know, a laptop and you've got to buy some scrubs or whatever it is. You know, you're only talking about five to 10 grand, but as a student, that's five to 10 grand you don't have. Yeah. Next cab off the rank is usually the car. And then we have that discussion about what's the right car to buy at this point in your career. And then it tends to move on quite quickly. Once the cash is hitting the bank, it tends to move on to, I want to buy a house. And I think the reason for that is really because in that first two to three years, most dentists that I speak to really want to hone their craft by working with a mentor in another person's practice. And so they don't really feel comfortable to go out on their own and set up a practice or buy somebody else's practice. Because I think, you know, they're really, no pun intended, cutting their teeth in terms of their professional life. And at the end of that period, then they're going to start looking at a practice. So the sequence normally that I see is overdraft to buy some of the things you need just to get out the door and go to work, yeah. a car to get you there, then a house, really, because I've got money coming in now, feels like the right thing to do. In Australia, everybody's into property. Yeah. And obviously, I want to do something with the money I'm now earning. And then two to three years down the line, it's about buying a practice. And then it's a decision point around, am I going to buy somebody else's practice, buy into the one that I'm working in at the moment, or set up something from scratch? So, you know, that's sort of how I see the trajectory of the first, you know, sort of five years going. At the end of the five years, then you've usually got somebody that, you know, has has bought their first property and is now either bought into the practice where they were mentor, being mentored or, you know, have in some way take, become a business owner, business professional themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, I when I first graduated dental school, when I was on that holiday that you're speaking of, um, that's when I was like really starting to trying to learn about you know, just like, you know, wealth creation and all those sort of things. So, you know, those classic, you know, richest man in Babylon and rich dad, poor dad and all those things. So yeah. I had an interesting mindset of, look, I don't want to spend money on, you know, things that aren't assets or they're not going to generate income. So, and it's funny because I, you know, like on social media and stuff, I have classmates and they, they live like a very different sort of like lifestyle to sort of where I live, where I'm saving money, buying, you know, stocks and investments and things. And um, a lot of people have the nice BMWs and, you know, nicer cars and things like that. So uh, it's, it's yeah. funny that it's like that different psychology that people have versus like saving up money to, you know, enjoy down the track maybe versus living in the moment now and enjoying it now. Um, but yeah. it's, a, it's a good point that you bring up with the cars and things like that too. Like you're not going to, you know, if you might save up money upfront buying like an old Corolla, but it'll cost you more in the short term because you won't be happy with it or it'll break down. It'll cost you too much to repair it. Or you have to sort of do that early, early changeover in terms of this. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say, like, how did it sound when I kind of said that first five years? How did it relate to how you've how you've gone about your career so far? Like some similarities? So it's I I I'm, I think I'm different in a way because I because I'm from Canada, so I'm here in Australia right now, and you know I'm just working as an associate. But because we're not sure long term where if we're going to stay here or go back, so some of those yeah. like anchoring moves, like buying the house or buying the practice, has sort of been uh, just pushed down the line a little bit. Um, yeah. so that cash flow that was sitting in the account where traditionally I would have bought a house or bought a practice has gone into like investing and things like that. So, um, it's, it's been quite lucky because it's been an interesting year with investing as well since like last March. But, uh, I think that's I think the, um, I think that's what I meant when I said there's no, you know, single solution to this, yeah. this issue. And I think that's the thing that we try to focus on with our team. It's, you know, every situation we go into is unique. And so it's not like a one size fits all. I mean, there's some general trends, but absolutely like in your situation, you know, you've got to get things like foreign investment review board approval to be able to buy a property yeah. and you're buying it on a visa comes with its own challenges as well, because obviously a lot of lenders will look at that and go, well, I don't know if you're going to be able to stay here permanently. So I'm at risk by lending you the money to buy a property because the, the government could turn around and say, sorry, no renewal of your visa. So, yeah. you know, I think we go into every situation with a really open mind. I think what I, what I encourage the team to do is, you know, try and not just deliver what the person thinks that they want, because it's like, I want a car. I think I want a Corolla and it's 10 grand and can I have the money? I think it's we go, let's take a step backwards and try interrogate that a little bit. Why are you buying a Corolla, you know, and, and what's the long-term plan? And, you know, most of the team at Credible have been doing this, you know, exclusively with medical professionals for 10, 15, 20 years. Like we've kind of seen it all. And so for us, there's, you know, there's the advice factor um, around making sure that you make a smart decision. Um, that's really important. Yeah, for sure. And I think it comes down to, uh, like you said, it's very individual in terms of interest as well. Not every, and I have, you know, so many, like uh, my wife's uh, a doctor and like all her friends and stuff, even like all of our dental friends, they're not, they don't think about investing and that kind of stuff as such. So they're more focused on their career, you know, generating income from their, from their work and then buying like the things that are more sort of uh, routine or laid out, like buying the house and buying the practice and things like that uh, versus investing. Uh, I'm curious about debt because uh, that, that's a really interesting topic and, you know, leverage and all these sort of things. And especially nowadays with what's happening with like um, interest rates being so low, has that changed Credible's approach to lending or people coming to you guys to get funding for, um, you know, expanding a practice or buying a second home uh, as an investment or, or changing houses to a bigger house? Um, tell me a little bit about that side of things, if, how like the, the global, like the financial lending space has changed in the last couple of years. Look, I think um, I'm really proud of the fact that we've always been very consistent. So we haven't changed our style of lending. I mean, we, we feel really lucky to work with the group that we do because we can support them through all of the cycles. Um, and we have done, you know, we've been through GFC, we've been through COVID, we've been through all kinds of stuff with, with this profession. And the one thing that, you know, is really comforting for us is that their earning is consistent throughout. And therefore, it's allowed us to be consistent in how we go about lending throughout. And so we've always done things that the mainstream financiers have thought is a little bit crazy. You know, like we've lent people 100% to get into commercial property. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we did that was not because we thought we were taking more risk. I mean, it was really related to your first question, which is 
when um, when somebody was building a practice, they would need to accumulate a 30% deposit in order to buy their practice premises. Mm-hmm. Now, the challenge with that is generally most people have got other career or life ambitions, like you just mentioned, you know, buying a, a new car, et cetera. And so saving that 30% of their uh, deposit for their practice premises became very low down on the list of priorities and therefore never happened. And they carried on being perennial renters. And so as a team, we looked at that and said, look, this is the location where people trade. There's a goodwill element to it. You know, it's it's one of the first bills that gets paid. It's integral to their practice and how they build their practice. We need to lend them all of the money so that we can actually bring it forward in, in priority and get them to owning their property well before. And so not to digress too much from your question, but I think the thing we've always tried to think about ways to solve the problems that face the profession and our lending has been relatively consistent throughout. So we've always lent, you know, 100% for commercial property, 100% for the assets to buy the business, et cetera. And the variation of interest rates hasn't really changed that very much. Um, what it has done is affected servicing ability. So in other words, obviously, if you have a million dollar mortgage with a 2% interest rate, as is floating around at the moment, well, now you're looking at $20,000 of interest rate. Yeah. Wind the clock back sort of eight, 10 years, we were at six and 7%. You know, now the interest cost is 60 or 70. I mean, that's a three times differential. Huge, yeah. so that makes a big difference to people's ability to borrow money. Um, and the, the 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 size of the investment that they might make. So you know the the property that somebody would have bought when interest rates are six and seven percent that might have been a million dollars. Well, now at two percent, it might be one point five or two million dollars. And so the money goes further, if you like. Um, and you know the the thing that we've seen is very cyclical kind of appetite around lending according to regulation according to gfc etc we've tried to be fairly consistent throughout so you know support the ambitions no matter where we've been in the cycle um, which hasn't been easy always because you know you kind of moving against the market um, but we you know we have managed to do it yeah that's great i think you know one of the things that we touched on in previous episodes was the benefits of working with a specialist lender given that you guys work with so many doctors and dentists uh, you yeah. know specifically what our career arc is like and earning potential and challenges and things and so it's, it makes it much easier for someone to come to someone like yourself to to you know try and get funding versus going directly to the bank where they might not understand like the nuances of of where we are or how things are going to be growing over the next few years i'm curious you know everyone likes you know success stories and like cautionary tales and things uh do you have some obviously without naming names and things some examples of some people who've excelled in this sort of uh, period of time from like zero to five years have done really well for themselves um, and maybe on the other end of the spectrum where some people maybe grew too fast or had to kind of you know you know uh, hone it back in before they sort of started growing again um yeah <laughs> there are there are plenty floating around um look i think um there are loads and loads of cliches about you know how to be astute you know you you mentioned some of the books that you read you when you're on holiday you know cash is king and you know fail to plan plan to fail you know that sort of thing i think the people that i have seen that have been the most successful they've really surrounded themselves with experts and knowledge from from the get-go um, and whether that's a financier, whether it's, you know, the accountant, you know, the style of accountant that you choose, you know, there are different accounts out there. There are accountants that will really just deliver a tax return and they'll do it for a lot of people. And there are people that will spend a lot of time with an individual client and build a plan around them. 
there's a cost there's a cost differential you know you can't get service without cost yeah. so you know somebody that says look i just want a tax return will get the service that they've asked for and that will just be a tax return that's not going to help them with wealth creation somebody that wants to to go down a path of wealth creation needs to accept that somebody's going to have to invest 6 10 15 hours you know on a on a biannual basis basically to make sure that they understand the situation and that they're building a plan accordingly and so the people that I've seen that um, have done the best have surrounded themselves with those experts from the beginning. The second thing is they've faced the cold, hard reality of what their budget looks like. So the number of people I sit with that I say to them, do you have a budget? And I get like a very blank look back in exchange is quite scary for me because, I, you know, clearly it's my field. So I run my own accounts like a business. Yeah. And so I know everything that comes in and everything that goes out every single month. I know the excess and I know when I've overspent. Um, and I found that by and large, I think that most people that don't have a budget, it's because they don't want to know. You know, they-, they <laughs> Ignorance is bliss, yeah. <laughs> yeah, igno exactly. But I actually think ignorance is anxiety because yeah. I think it's something that they, they've chosen not to do and they know that they ought to do it and not knowing how much comes in and how much, if you don't know how much you're earning and how much you're spending, how can you build a plan about what you can put away, what you can invest? You know, how do you decide whether you can go out for that extra meal out on a Thursday or not? Mm -hmm. How do you decide if you can buy a new car? You know, and so as simple as it sounds, it's really rudimentary stuff, but you've got to start with a budget and you've got to understand how much is coming in and how much is going out. And in the early days of a career, you know, similarly to running a business, I often say to, you know, young medical students, particularly who tend to earn a little bit less than, you know, immediate graduating dentists. Yeah. Um, I often say to them, it's OK to go backwards for a year or two because I know where your income is going. Yeah. So if you make a conscious decision, look, I earn $8,000 a month and I'm going to spend $8,000, but I'm going to keep it at $8,000. And as my income trajectory goes up from 100000 to 200000 that surplus is not going to just disappear into, yeah. you know, more meals out. That's okay. But you've got to have a plan. You've got to know what you're dealing with in order to make those decisions. And, you know, it's similar to, like I said, starting a business, you know, very often chatting to people, um, starting a business is a costly enterprise. And, you know, it, it's not something that you get trained on, you know, not really in any yeah. medical, mental or, or healthcare degree that I've, I'm aware of. Um, because I think there's so much volume to get through in terms of medicine itself. Yeah. But um, I think, you know, without that training, obviously, then you emerge and you think about setting up a business like, oh, I don't really know where to start. And the number one thing I say to people is when you start a business, you are going to run at a deficit. You are going to run at a loss. And so similarly, you can think about your career path that way a little bit. It's like, I'm going to run it, you know, if you want to do it this way, I'm going to make a conscious decision to run at a loss for a year or two, but my income is going to move ahead of that. And then when that income moves ahead, then I'm going to move on to buying a house, buying a car, doing all these extra things. The problem that I see that causes most people to fail is that they just keep spending as their income goes up with no regard to what's coming in and what's going out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's honestly, I think it's that basic because then once you start doing that, like you've mentioned, you know, even if it's only two grand a month, I think a lot of people look at it and say, I'm only, I only have two grand a month to do anything with. I can't buy a house. I'm going to have to save up for however many months. Well, the hard truth is you've got to start somewhere. 
So take that $2,000 a month and invest it in, you know, uh, stocks possibly. Maybe buy an index fund, buy something that has the top ASX 100 companies and just keep putting $2,000 in there. And with dividends and capital gains and $2,000 a month, actually what will happen is that that period will shorten right in front of you. But you've got to start somewhere. You can't just accept defeat. Yeah, that's great. And it's interesting with the with the budget because how I've, you know, and it's definitely not the only way or the right way at all, but how I normally do it is I don't, I'm not like strict of, okay, I'm going to have like X amount of dollars for meals and entertainment. But I just, every time I get paid, we've had a, you know, since I started working was just start, take 30% gross off the top into savings. And then whatever's left is left. Like if, if I'm running out of money, yeah. then out of money and that's how, but then you know you've put your savings away before you spend anything at all and then that's sort of a absolutely a, and that that is also a great plan like the so-called bucketing yeah. um you know, plan which there's nothing wrong with that at all like i just you know from a personal point of view you would never run a business without doing your accounts right like mm-hmm. you'd have a bookkeeper you'd run and so i just say why do it, it doesn't make sense to me but i'm a financial person <laughs> i'm like why would you not um just run your personal finances like you run a business. Like I run zero for my own personal finances. All of the stuff feeds in. Mm -hmm. It literally takes me seven to eight minutes a day to update everything. And anytime, you know, my my family's going crazy with spending, I could just call up a profit and loss and say, guys, it's enough already. Um, And so for me, I guess it's one of those things where I find it hard to understand, but I think it's probably like that for a medical professional, you know, when you go, you see somebody that's not brushing their teeth or not exercising, you're like, why do you not do that? Like, it's just so obvious that you should. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And I think it is like one of those things where like that discipline like leads to freedom down the track. But a lot of people like lack that discipline to like have, you know, strict books on their personal finances. Uh, It's interesting with the with like the lifestyle you said you know start making eight grand a month and then your income goes up but i think that's the problem most of us face is the the income goes up and then our lifestyle kind of keeps up with it so we always struggle to like save money so i think that's yeah. like the challenge even if you can make it lag behind by a few years at least and then you can accrue a lump sum that becomes a down payment for a house or a down payment for a practice yeah i was just going to say that what you want is a bit of a lag effect so yeah. okay so you know i'm not saying you know live like a monk you know, from that day onwards and bank every dollar of increases. But, you know, if you move from 100,000 to 200,000, which would be, you know, fairly common for a dentist in the course of the first probably two to three years of their career, Mm -hmm. if you're moving up by $100,000, then as you say, bucket 30% of that increase. So achieve a standard of living that is comfortable, like you've worked hard. You know, I'm not one of these guys that says you should, you know, you should live like a monk. I'm saying you've worked hard, you deserve, you deserve a good lifestyle, you should have fun, you should go on holidays, et cetera, et cetera. But when you see your income increasing, how much of that should you bucket to the, you know, I don't need actually to increase my lifestyle exponentially. I actually, you know, just a little bit better is good and I'm putting 50% of my extra 100 grand away every year. Yeah, and there's a lot to be said about the freedom it creates. Like I, you know, I worked in private practice for for three years and, you know, doing that bucket system, like, you know, 30% aside, um, I decided to take like a public hospital job to like, just learn some oral surgery last year. And it was pretty much like a 50% pay cut, but like having that lifestyle be where it was and having that savings where it was like, ma- like allowed that transition to happen without too much stress or like, and like nothing essentially changed in our life because the lifestyle hadn't kind of got out of control just yet. Um, yeah. But I think that's, you know, and you, you know, can days and all those things, like you can buy time back if you're just like disciplined a little bit with the financial side. 
yeah, I mean, I mentioned before that old adage, cash is king, but that, that really is what sinks people and gets them into trouble. And so the question you've got to ask yourself is, you know, if I needed an emergency, you know, depending on your lifestyle, but if I needed an emergency $20,000, where would it come from? Mm-hmm. You know, and if you can't answer that question without saying, well, I'd have to wait for a paycheck, you know, then you've got a problem. And I think that causes a lot of anxiety and, you know, real freedom in my in my way of looking at the world real freedom comes from knowing where that comes from and so then you can act and think differently so like you say you can make a career choice that is very different but if you haven't got that kind of backstop you can't make that career choice Mm -hmm. you have to keep you know doing things the way you've done them before in order to bank the paycheck just to keep kind of just to keep swimming so yeah yeah. and in terms of the practice ownership front um, from people who you've worked with, because I, I know it's like a big debate, like, and you touched on it briefly in the, in the initial bit in terms of, you know, buying into an existing practice or opening one from scratch. You know, the people who, who you see make that decision. So say they're five years out and they've got the clinical scope and they feel comfortable to step into a, a practice ownership role to be the principal dentist. How, how does that next five years play out for both those camps where I've bought into an existing practice where there's existing cash flow, but I've taken on maybe more debt to acquire that practice? Or I've you know spent maybe four hundred five hundred thousand dollars to you know do a fit out and start from scratch with no income to start. How does that? How do you see that play out like the next five years for those two like camps of people? Yeah, again, probably a strange answer from a financier, yeah. but I think it's actually about personality. Mm-hmm. You know, different people have different risk appetites. Different people, you know, are more comfortable running a business and not running a business. So I think, you know, we try to work with people and say, okay, like with what you're comfortable with, you know, setting up a practice might just be more risk than you are going to be comfortable with. Like at the end of the day, we just want people to sleep at night, you know. And so if you're somebody that's kind of risk averse and maybe, you know, not feeling really confident about, you know, your your practice skills at that point in time, then maybe buying into a practice is the right solution for you because you're going to still be surrounded by colleagues. You know, there's going to be a certain amount of cash flow that comes in from day one. So yes, you're going to lay out potentially more, you know, to to buy the goodwill. And it's very tempting for people to reject that notion because they're like, well, why would I buy something that I can build? But if it's the right solution for you and you can maybe you can build it bigger than it is when you buy it, you know, it's a little bit like buying a house that can be renovated. Like if you see, a, you know, a dilapidated house or, you know, and I'm not saying practices are dilapidated, of course, but if you see an opportunity there to take a property that's there and improve it, yeah. well, that's just a smarter way of going about it as it is to go and buy a brand new house or build a brand new house. Yeah. And so, you know, again, before we even get to the money, I think we need to talk about the individual and, you know, how comfortable they are. Building a business is a really different thing to working in a business. Mm-hmm. And so I think you have to think about that. You know, people management is a massive, you know, obstacle or, or challenge for anybody that runs a business. Um, and, you know, you have to think about that very carefully. You have to run your own cash flow. You have, you know, you're ultimately making all these decisions that are quite different. Yeah. Then when it comes down to the magnitude, well, you know, Recently, it's become, you know, quite an expensive enterprise to get into practice. Like if you take a dental practice now, when I first started doing this, not to show my age, but probably we would see people setting up practice for about $150,000. You know, now it can be half a million dollars. 
you know, there's there's so many things that you can put into a practice. Yeah. You know, there's so much technology, there's so much sophistication, and you have to decide what is the right level of technology and sophistication for the practice you think you can build. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to have, you know, put in, you know, the most advanced X-ray, you know, you might just take a simple intraoral because that's the kind of practice that you want to build yeah. or you might want to put that technology into the practice once you've got a little bit of cash flow going so again we try to work through with people what their tolerances are you know if it's really if they're going to be very uncomfortable with the idea of big repayments you know that negative in the first six to nine months being quite significant then we will probably work with them to scale that back a little bit and say okay why don't we establish cash flow and build the practice a little bit more moderately. Yeah. Some people really want everything on day one. You know, they've worked in, you know, a high yielding practice. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of practice that, you know, the kind of surgery that they're used to doing and they want all the bells and whistles from the first day. Um, and so the differential now between buying and setting up a practice is probably, you know, less than it was in my view um, years ago. And how are because obviously it takes you know you're going to be cash flow negative for a while and most from my understanding most lending goes towards fit out but you don't necessarily get working capital um, is that correct so how do people like how do how do people are people working like a part-time associateship on the side to maintain some sort of cash flow or just coming in with like a lot of personal savings into this sort of project yeah look i think a lot of people still work somewhere else partly because if you think about it it's a bit of a transition so we're talking about you know let's say on average, three to four years is really where I think most people start thinking, hey, it's time for me to do something. Um, and at that point, they still probably love and enjoy being around other practitioners, yeah. you know, and, and getting advice on, you know, the treatment plan or the procedure they're about to do. And so I would say more often than not, we see people working in their existing practice and setting up somewhere else. They tend to set up quite far away from the existing practice simply because obviously they don't want there to be any conflict yeah. and they don't want the practice that they're in to think that they're trying to take the patients. They just want to build their own business. And so I would say more often than not, they're, they're transitioning by, you know, two days, you know, in the existing practice they work in or three days and then gradually building up the other practice that they've gone into. But there are people that just cut the cord on day one, um, use their savings and open up their practice um and, and you know start from start from nothing effectively yeah, go all in. i think they, again they've got to be more comfortable with the idea of going bigger into the red yeah. before they kind of come out um but you know I, th I think it's your question about working capital i think you've got to look for a holistic solution so you know you need somebody that's going to support you if your business plan doesn't quite go to plan um, you need obviously fit out to put in your cabinetry and all of the things that you need to be a practitioner. Um, obviously, you need equipment, you know, and you've got to decide what equipment is right for you because there's yeah. lots of different suppliers. Um, you know, most people, I guess, tend to go with one of two. Either they go with what they trained on when they were when they were graduating or they go with what they're working on at the moment in the practice yeah. they're in. Um, you don't very often see people suddenly, you know, switching brand to something else. Um, you know, when they start their new practice. So, you know, it's a holistic solution. You need um, the fit out, the equipment, the overdraft facility. And I think you need a friendly advisor, um, you know, when things aren't quite going to plan that doesn't just say, look, we gave you the money we gave you and that's the end of it. We're, we're cutting off the tap. 
you need somebody that understands and goes, okay, I think you're doing all the right things, but maybe, maybe we should introduce you to this, you know, partner and they could help you maybe ramp up that area of your practice. And that I think is what our team, you know, works with people on. Yeah, definitely uh, surrounding yourself with the right people is very important to like getting success in, in, in anything really, even in dentistry, like you said, with mentorship and things, but especially in setting up a business, you want to be with people you can go to for advice and get their, get their expertise. And I'm yeah. curious about sort of um, the, you know, once you have a practice, are you seeing, because there's a debate I have with my friends all the time is, you know, because everyone has like their like ideal, oh, I want to own like three practices or I want to like do this and that. Yeah. You, you find the more successful formula is multiple practice ownership or like one really well-run <laughs> practice. Uh, we could debate this too. Um, <laughs> look, I certainly think there is a, like on my training, I'm an economist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my training tells me that there's diminishing returns on multiple practices. Mm-hmm. Now that isn't to say that you can't do well from multiple, mm-hmm. but I think that spreading yourself across practices you know, unless somebody's invested as an owner in the business, nobody else acts the same way and you shouldn't expect them to. You know, somebody that works in your business is not going to act the same as somebody that works and owns. Yeah. And so you, naturally you're going to get diminishing returns because if you have three practices, well, you know, even a really hardworking dentist probably can't do more than two days in each, which means that each one of them has four days without you. And so just from a psychological point of view, you can understand why that business can't run the same way as the one where you're in it six days a week. However, of course, there's the issue around scale, because if you've got three practices in three different locations, then you've got a different scale of business. So let's say, for example, that you you're a general dentist and you have your first practice and you bill $700,000 a year and you, you know, you're, you're netting say $200,000 a year. When you open up your second one, you might still achieve $700,000 of billings, but I don't think that you will see $200,000 coming in in the bottom line because you've got to pay somebody to work there the other days, et cetera. But it doesn't mean it's a bad investment because obviously you could make multiples. <laughs> like it, 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 I, think, um, I think the thing that's the biggest challenge with having multiple practices is the management that goes with it. Yeah. the time management, remotely managing people that work for you from a distance, not having them like right under your nose. A lot of people find it quite um, difficult not to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so we often see people opening a second practice or buying a second practice and within a couple of years selling it or exiting it from the second one because they just simply don't enjoy the experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think definitely diminishing returns, but it doesn't mean that it's a bad strategy. That's right. Yeah, I guess uh, uh, the model I have in mind always, and again, it's like a future sort of way of envision things going is maybe have a, if you, if there's like a few procedures that you really enjoy doing, kind of going between your three practices or two practices, focusing on those two or three procedures. And then, yeah, like yeah. some sort of partnership, because, you know, even, even from these small, you know, the podcast and like other stuff that uh, I run with some friends, you realize how, imp- how important like equity is or like skin in the game is for people to actually like, care. Um, so that'd be something that I would think about is maybe the associate dentists that work those other practices would also be like part owners that are uh, maybe a minority stake, but still have some skin in the game. So they actually like when they're there, they care more though, that more so than just like an associate would care. Yeah. I guess um, when you mentioned something like that, the immediate thing that springs to mind to me is please, please, please have a partnership agreement. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, just something that regulates your relationship from a business point of view. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of people getting into business and their mates, you know, and unfortunately, you need to have a mechanism for what happens if this happens, yeah. you know, because you'll come at it from different angles. And like I've seen lots of lots of partners that are great mates and that are, you know, both have valid viewpoints arrive at a decision point and unable to make the decision because they yeah. just can't agree. And it's so much easier to agree it academically beforehand. It's like, what if this happens? What will we do? Mm-hmm. Like, what if one of us dies? What will we do? What if, you know, like all of these kind of things. So it's like, yeah, please, <laughs> whenever that's you that's work, a great point. Yeah. please get a partnership agreement, honestly. <laughs> and and sometimes we even condition that in our credit because, I you know, I, I, I don't see any reason for it to be conflict um and so very often when we've got you know mates coming out of union we're lending to them you know and and we sometimes get a bit of resistance to it i'm like yeah we'll we'll approve this we'll definitely support you but we want to see your partnership agreement and they you know there's sometimes they think we're overstepping and it's simply because i've seen so many difficult situations arise from not having one and i'm like i you know i i just don't want to see you guys in that situation yeah it's bad it can get messy pretty quickly yeah no, that's great. I think um, we touched on a lot of really, you know, important topics and, and I, I love this stuff because I, it's really important. I, I, you know, over the past couple of years, as you learn more and more about finances and wealth and accounting and investing, um, the more you kind of enjoy it. I, I just, I treat it like as a bit of a game. And I think the game is to like, you know, get to retirement and have enough money to retire if you want. Like never have, you know, if you don't have financial hardship in your life, then you've sort of beat the game at a basic level. Uh, so I hope these, you know, these past you know, few, three or four episodes have been really helpful for other dentists. Because I, th- I, I know that's not the case that everyone thinks about this stuff all the time. It's just, you know, if you care about it or if you are interested in it, then you start kind of go down the rabbit hole a little bit more. Uh, but having the opportunity to chat with yourself and the other uh, team members at Credible and getting to pick their, you know, pick their brain about these topics has been really exciting. Is there any last minute uh, pointers or advice or anything that you have for the, for the, you know, the young, young dentist listening before we wrap up Stafford? Look, I mean, I said it before, but I think not only um, in your business life, but professionally, like follow the, follow the method that you've used in your profession, surround yourself with, advisors, mentors, professors, you know, you've done it all the way through your training career and you're doing it in the early part of your professional career. And it's the same, it's the same with running a business. Just surround yourself with people that can give you insights. And, you know, like I always say, you know, something that's free is is valueless. Um, and so, you know, when you go looking for somebody that, you know, gives you advice, but there's no, there's no cost to that advice, is it does it really have value you know like working with working with professional groups costs money lawyers accountants you know all these professional services they cost money for a reason because they'll help you know what you don't know and so i think that's you know start sooner rather than later and i think acknowledge that advice comes at a cost yeah. um, and i'm like obviously finance comes at a cost but i'm really talking about more the people you surround yourself with mm-hmm. If you're going to get good value out of it, you've got to, you know, don't look for, don't look for the lowest cost. Look for somebody that you resonate with, that you think understands who you are as a person, and you know, charges you fairly to, to tell you the things that you don't know. Yeah, that, that's amazing advice. One of my one of my dental mentors, I remember when I first graduated, said, 
no CPD or like no dental course under a thousand dollars is worth your time going to. Um, and I think that's the same, like the most you know successful practice owners that uh, friends of mine, they spend a lot of money on, you know, joining business masterminds and getting business coaches and um, talking to consultants and all these sort of things. So um, yeah, it's one of those things where the more money you spend, the more money you can earn because you just get better high value advice that people have spent a lot of time learning. So you got to pay for that, which makes sense. How many times have you had somebody come in and say, oh, I think the guy around the corner will do a crown for, you know, $400 and you just think, mm. go for like, it. <laughs> exactly. You know, it, it, you know, it, it costs money to do things well. Yeah. I, I think that's, and I've brought this up in the previous episode as well, like that shopping on price, we as healthcare professionals, we see patients doing that and we, we want to try and convey that it's, it's not the cheapest. That's the best. Like it's not a, you know, like it's not a Kit Kat bar where you can buy it at the movie theater for five bucks and then go to the grocery store and it's a dollar. It's, it's not the same between the two. So um, yeah. you shouldn't treat it like the same. So um, thanks again. That was a, that was a really insightful episode. A lot of fun, exciting topics. I think a lot of people get a lot of value from it. Um, I will put your, you know, Credibles information in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in learning more about uh, the lending services available, um, definitely encourage you guys to check it out. Like we said, you got to get some expert advice on these topics. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, Aaron. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbiedentist.com. Have a great day.